0: Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Carolyn Ford, joined by Eric Trexler. And this week, we have part two, um, of our discussion with Major General Joe Brendler, U.S. Army retired and now a principal at Deepwater Point LLC about multi-domain operations, building cross-domain solutions in Milcon and tactical
1: applications. So in the modern day then, I mean we, we have SpaceX and Boeing and Virgin, Virgin Galactic, I believe, bringing out you know space-based networks at this point, wireless comms that are coming out in the near future. We could really, a a small team of six people like I served on, go in country with a laptop and run access transfer, access solutions, excuse me. Um, They could run VDI sessions on multiple networks in theater
2: at the team level. And you could probably further reduce the cost of the setup I was describing by eliminating the need for the dedicated encryption device if you use... The available commercial solutions for classified information processing that uh, yeah. are authorized today. So in combination, that that the acronym there is CSFC. So in combination, yeah. CSFC and a multi-level secure uh, access uh, platform would enable you at rel- at significantly lower cost than it would have been ten years ago to go in and do what you're talking about, Eric. Uh, so Carolyn, Carolyn uh, Jesse Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, I was just going to caution that, you know, um, as a, uh, um, as a special operator, you would also have uh, communications officers supporting you who are trained to make sure that you're never relying on just one method of communication. Typically, the acronym there is PACE, Primary, Alternate, Contingency and Emergency (laughs) Communications plans are always in place. So it may be that that satellite connectivity you're talking about is the primary, but you'd have an alternate plan too, in case that just isn't available either because the adversary denied it to you or mother nature did.
1: Allow me to translate that. That means three types of radios, multiple keyboards, and a hell of a lot of batteries you're humping into the bush. (laughs) <laughs>
0: well, and I hear like the ROI part of it. You're saying, you know, saving a lot of money, but
1: there's like, also a space and weight. I mean, think about well, a 6-person exactly. yeah, yeah. a 6-person team if you could carry one laptop device. So, Joe, you you mentioned encryption. I think I think we use it's been a long time. I think it was a KY57 Vincent.
2: Yeah. That,
1: that we that would carry good. we would carry that out into the field with us to encrypt our transmission. Well, that had a different battery than the three different types of radios we had. We had SATCOM, we had HF, and we had FM radios, right? So a six-person team is carrying three different radios. They've got their own surveillance mission, multiple batteries for everything. And then we carried multiple keypads in case one would break. That's heavy. It's a lot of cost. It's a lot of complexity. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of stuff to destroy when you're in the field and in a contested environment also. It sounds like, you know, if we can get it down to one system, maybe you're carrying two of the same in case of for redundancy back to the pace concept.
2: Yeah, yeah, you have to have the right level of redundancy. Otherwise, you're down to one thing and that one thing becomes nothing as soon as one of those mother nature effects or an adversary takes that capability away from you. So you, you need to have the optimized solution which has sufficient redundancy in it.
1: Yeah, no, I'm taking it to the extreme. I'm talking a six-man team, six-person yeah. team, excuse yeah. me, 100 miles behind enemy lines. But even if you're looking at a brigade talk or something like sure. that, they still have to have that redundancy. They have to have the different communication devices, the batteries, well, the power and generation and everything else. What we do is really we optimize the warfighter's ability to uh, to be nimble and move more, move more quickly, right? Yes. Yeah.
0: And and that's what I I mean, that's what I'm zeroing in on is – before the cross-domain solutions, I just, I don't even know how it was possible for you to do your job, Eric.
1: Like Well, we, we carried encryption devices and, and different radios for connectivity. Um, you know, and, you know we didn't deal with the, the different network segmentations as much in those days. I imagine much more so these days, but it's complex. It's expensive, additional complexity, weight, size right and it, we were carrying battery batteries instead of water and food instead of ammunition i mean that those are the trade-offs you have to make because you're mission incapable if you can't communicate mm-hmm. and at the at the team level and as you go up the stack i think joe what you would say is you're mission incapable if you can't commu- you spend a whole year a whole career trying to ensure communications were there and as fast and
2: easy as possible right yeah absolutely and i think most of the um Uh, modern commanders would, um, emphasize the same thing that you did, Eric, is you can't talk, can't fight.
1: Yeah. And what we had to do back in the day, now I'm really sounding old. Um, and once again, I was an infantryman, so very select purpose, but if we needed naval gunfire, we wanted to call in an airstrike. We didn't have radios for that, right? We would have to make communications back. And depending on what you were doing, you either had a satellite window open or you were able to bounce something off the ionosphere. Sometimes you could get through, sometimes you couldn't, but we didn't have any way to directly communicate with the Navy offshore, with the Air Force flying around. If we were dealing with a coalition type of network or environment, we, we had no way to do that. And, and one of the things I'm seeing with programs like the Mission Partner Environment, MPE, and others like that, Joe, are we're really breaking down some of those barriers so that we can communicate more seamlessly with one another.
2: Yes. Well, that um, uh, mission partner environment that you described, Eric, I think that's the perfect setting for the application of um, uh, both transfer and access cross domain solutions in order to optimize the uh, uh, the configuration. Why is that? Well, it's it's uh, the partner nation um, or the coalition. Uh, communications environment that we were describing earlier in the conversation, that is the purpose of the mission partner environment program is to create that. Um, so uh, in order to make it possible for um, the multiple members of the coalition to uh, share information, share sensitive information with each other in an optimized fashion, uh, you have to have the ability to um, Rapidly establish that environment for a new coalition where one may not have previously existed. And if you look at some of the geographic regions where uh, we face various adversaries, um, we can't say for certain that we know exactly who the members of the coalition would be. uh, And they may change
1: over time, too,
2: right? They may change over time. And um, if each coalition you establish requires its own dedicated set of hardware, uh, it's it's unaffordably expensive to establish one of those environments for every coalition. Um, and not to mention the the, um, the simple weight and transport expense of getting the physical equipment in place to support. Yeah,
0: that. how logistically feasible is that? Like even yeah. ti- on a timeline?
2: Well,
1: it's a lot of monitors, it's a lot of compute. Right? Yep. KVM switch, you can get rid of well, the mouse and, and keyboard, take maybe s- the monitor.
0: And how long does it take to stand something up like that? Like
2: That's A week?
0: Night.
1: A month?
2: Well, it, I mentioned uh, the first step is the agreement between the nations to share some sense of information with each other. So now we're talking a little while. Yeah, we're you know, potentially talking years to overcome that first step. But once you over, once you get past that first step and you've got an agreement that can become the basis for international cooperation of the coalition. You need to be able to uh, instantiate that with equipment quickly.
1: So what we're really talking about is let's pick on Poland, for instance, if we have a partnership with Poland and we're working on a, you know, a, a, uh, I don't know, an exercise, a drill of some sort, we can bring them into the network that we determine pretty quickly in this case, once the agreement is done. Um, they can operate on their networks, they can get a VDI session of a, a shared network, if you will, or, or certain data, um, and we can transfer and access data back and forth as coalition partners. Is that fair?
2: Yes, that's the objective of the MPE um, program we were talking about before, is to make it possible yeah. for U.S. forces to do our part in that scenario.
1: Okay, and then if we ever need to cut them off, that's a pretty quick and easy one too. Sure. I, w- I would think the same thing would apply. You know, if, if there's something spinning up in the indo Paycom AOR, um, I, I would think that it would be easy to bring somebody who's not on that network on that network quickly. They could almost subscribe to it, and they get their VDI session from an access perspective, um, and 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 quickly engage and understand what's happening and communicate with personnel on that network where before that didn't work so well. Right?
2: Yes, that's um, uh, that's. What I was talking about before is the MPE becomes the way that we are equipped in order to join that okay. e- each partner nation would either have to have a similar uh, program that is producing uh, equipment and procedures that are consistent enough with those that we're using so that that coalition can come together quickly, um, or they would have to have a, um, a sponsor, so to speak, that would be able to kind of lift them from a technology perspective and sustain their capability if that uh, partner nation doesn't organically have that uh, that industry, for example. And that was the case with some of our partners in um, operations in Afghanistan. We had a, a set of them we referred to as lift and sustain partners for which the, the U.S. actually provided the equipment um, through um, uh I guess, a technology transfer of some sort.
1: And does CSFC help us with that from an access perspective? Because we don't have to give them sensitive comms gear, sensitive encryp- encryption gear in that case?
2: Yes, I, um, I don't have any personal experience applying CSFC in that setting, but I could foresee that it would be much simpler to do that than uh, try to find the encryption devices that we're willing to give them.
1: Right. So, so you have a secure link. It's commercial off the shelf software or hardware in this case, um, which, you know, they have access to in many cases anyway. So you can get them on the network and working when you want them to.
2: Yeah, right here.
1: Okay. So it's 2020 right now. I call this crystal ball time, Carolyn. In an ideal world, what does 2025, 2030 look like? I mean, how are we communicating? What's changed?
0: Well, and I want to know, like, have we seen changes since the current environment? I mean, what's the pandemic done to the way the military communicates?
2: Good question. Uh, I think the, the quick answer to that question is, is that it has accelerated some of the programmatic change that was already queued up to happen. Uh, if you look at the rate at which the uh, DOD has adopted uh, the solution it's calling Commercial Virtual Remote. Um, that is essentially through um, the, the application of um, uh, commercial cloud capabilities, a rapid transition to uh, enable a teleworking environment. Um, in combination with that and some of the pilots that are going on right now, there's also. A an acceleration of the adoption of solutions involving commercial solutions for classified that we mentioned earlier. Uh, the VDI technologies that Eric was referring to, to make it possible to put, you know, access cross-domain solutions on the end of a commercial mm-hmm. solution for classified connectivity, uh, to make it possible to remotely do classified work. Um, and, uh, you know, the, so the pandemic has essentially accelerated those developments.
1: Meaning, do it from home instead of in country in theater. In this case, theater would be, I, I can't go into the Pentagon right now. How do I access my desktop so I can do my job?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair.
1: Yeah, and instead of having two or three laptops, you know, you could you could theoretically be down to one system where you can access multiple networks via
2: VDI. Yeah. And so those things aren't happening wholesale right now, but there are pilots showing a lot of promise in that area. What do you think the future looks like then? How, how, how easy does this get? Well, as an optimist, I kind of foresee the successful delivery of some of those things that are in pilot right now, uh, the broadening um, application and normalization of the commercial cloud solutions that have been adopted for CVR, the commercial virtual remote and uh, um, the development of an expeditionary equivalency for that so that when it becomes necessary to actually put some infrastructure in theater, because as a, you know, as a career signal officer, I was often finding myself feeling and saying, you never wanna be on the far end of the skinny pipe from your server. Uh, you want the infrastructure to be there with you in order to optimize the user experience, I think that we'll see, um, in essence, the uh, availability of tactical versions of that same enterprise infrastructure that's now enabled through commercial cloud. Um, so, almost that, like a
1: tactical Microsoft or Amazon stack that you can connect to when you, when you are disconnected.
2: Yeah, some some technology maybe it's hybrid, maybe it is one of those specific vendors, but uh, Um, uh, To be agnostic to that for the time being, I think that it's uh, um, relatively safe to assume that there will be continued development along those lines in that direction and that um, uh, we'll achieve the objective of making it possible for these information technologies to be part of a military solution that makes technology function as an advantage for us. Um, okay. And instead of as a, as a complexity and something that's hard to get working. I,
1: I always worry because the military seems to run pretty well on connected networks these days. In fact, depends on, them. Mm-hmm. and I, I always worry what happens in a time of conflict with a near peer adversary when those networks aren't as reliable as we need them to be or expect them to be.
2: Well, the first uh, answer there, of course, is the redundancy we were referring to before. Yeah. You know, a denial of one capability doesn't deny our ability to operate because we had an alternative uh, built in as part of the plan. Uh, It's when you have the simultaneous denial of multiple systems that things become really challenging. And, um, you know, I I spent my time as an Army officer uh, under the... Uh, tutelage of um, uh, mentors who subscribe to what at the time we were referring to as um, mission command now is kind of a, a, a change back to the traditional terminology of command and control but the philosophy for command and control for army forces has been relatively decentralized so you disseminate the intent of the operation to capable leaders who can Take the resources that they have available and do what needs to be done in order to accomplish the intent, even in the absence of continuous positive control via some form of communications with their boss. Uh, and that's what we've essentially said all along has uh, been necessary. The more you make it possible for them to have continuous communication, um, you know, the the uh more streamlined an operation can be. Um, But it doesn't mean we can't operate. So So if we go ahead, Carol.
0: Well, I was just going to say with COVID, I mean, we're seeing a lot of a lot more attacks. And I'm wondering how the DOD is handling that or maybe how should they be handling it?
2: Well, one of the I guess one of the anecdotes that I could share there is uh, um, I was on a one of those professional development sessions that the association of the U S army chapter at Aberdeen Proving Ground supports periodically. And Mm -hmm. this one was done virtually because it was like last month. And the two keynote speakers were Ron Pontius, the deputy commander of U S army cyber command and, uh, Pat Dedham, the deputy to the commander of U S army network enterprise technology commander netcom. And I forget which one of them it was that said it, but, um, Um, They referred to the need to provide more uh, virtual private network connectivity for remote teleworkers and that the JRSS uh, program, the Joint Regional Security Stack program that had been uh, put together over the preceding decade became the hero of the battle from that perspective because it functioned as a a concentration point at which to um, provide some of that VPN connectivity. So that's one anecdote. I think the other is the acceleration of the adoption of things like um, CSFC and multi level secure access solutions for the VDI type um, uh, cross domain solution we were talking about before.
1: You know, I'd, I'd agree with you. And then when we look at things like, uh, you know, zero trust network architectures where you're connecting directly to the cloud on a secure channel you don't have to home run back to the base. Definitely a lot of movement in the industry there also.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, so, oh, go ahead, Joe.
2: No, I, along the lines of zero trust, um, I kind of break it down into the same four um, area, technology areas that uh, the DOD CIO has used to describe what he calls the DOD ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that is um, the comply to connect program is essentially intending to make it so that we know that we can trust the device that is about to be attached to the network. The identity credential and access management program, ICAM, is intended to make it so that we know we can trust the individual who's using the device that's about to connect to the network. Uh, we have programs for software assurance. and. DevSecOps as opposed to just DevOps now. So we build security into software development so that we know we can trust the software that the trusted user is going to employ on the trusted device that's about to connect to the network. And then we have uh, the principle of um, uh, data integrity, which is intended to ensure that the data, which is both the input and the output, from the trusted software being used by the trusted user on the trusted device is uh, um, using in that environment in fact is continuously trustworthy so we monitor all of those things and check them on a continuous basis and we've achieved the objective of zero trust and you know i can say that in a fashion and it makes it sound Easier than it really is. There's a lot, yeah, of, lot of lot of things connecting there, but
0: well, and you you mentioned trusting the device, and as you mentioned that, my Roomba just started going. So you know, yeah. my mind kind of works like a Roomba all over. So, but that just makes me think about like the Internet of Things and how that has complicated um, security and and how you handle that.
2: Yeah, um, the uh, uh, comply to connect program is implementing the endpoint security strategy um, that uh, various entities throughout DoD have agreed upon. U.S. Cybercom identified six different device categories of which uh, Internet of Things, IoT devices is one. There's also operational technologies such as would be embedded in weapon systems or uh, industrial control systems um, and so forth, the ICS SCADA uh, that's part of our critical infrastructure, the the military um, physical infrastructure, our bases have their own um, overlay, if you will, of their own critical infrastructure technologies that all have to be defended.
1: Okay, Carolyn, last question for General Brandler.
0: When are you going to come ski Utah?
1: That's right. You're a big (laughs) skier. That's right.
2: Yeah. So I suppose that'll have to wait till my next shot at retirement since this one resulted in me coming back to work as a consultant after I finished hiking the Appalachian Trail.
1: Yeah. Well, so do you still.
0: Yeah. Yes. You definitely need to come visit us. But um, how do you unwind at the end of the day? Do you still do a lot of hiking?
2: Um, I, I do, uh, some hiking with the family, uh, occasionally I, um, I do a lot of jogging. Um, I also have, uh, hobbies that include, uh, some of the same information technology things that we've talked about here. I've built on a, in my lab of, uh, leftover computers that I have converted to, uh, Linux infrastructure, uh, a uh, virtual desktop infrastructure environment using the, the Zen hypervisor on a platform that's Gentoo Linux, which is source-based, involves a lot of compilation, but you know it forces you to kind of learn the technologies. I also do robotics, um, and I know we're on video, so you can see it, but this is uh, the device. It kind of looks like a cutting board because it is a cutting board, but the hardware that's attached to it turns a cutting it board into. with
1: wheels and eyes and a few other things.
2: Yeah, those are. It's an ultrasonic ping sensor for forward view um, uh, vision that uh, like lidar. Uh, similar lidar, but it's sonar. Okay. It's sonar in the okay. ultrasound range. It also has whiskers in case the sonar does not detect an obstacle on the periphery. It, it will uh, um, execute an avoidance algorithm that depends on the location of the obstacle it's trying not to run into. So
0: wait, it uses light to ping obstacles that might be it might be approaching, and then it never crashes into anything.
1: No, it uses sound, I believe. Right? Yeah, sound.
0: Oh. Yeah. So does it? Is it always like beep, beep, beeping?
2: It, no, it is pretty loud, but that's the motors and, and uh, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a beeper on it. It does have a little light that flashes when it detects an obstacle. So it's blinking. So Joe, you were a, you were
1: an electrical engineer yep, and then a physics professor at West Point. And it sounds like you're coming back to your love here.
2: Yeah, uh, and this also uh, is uh, something that can be a bit of a family endeavor. My son's also an electrical engineer now. He graduated from Virginia Tech in 2015, and he's the one who um, showed me how to design printed circuit boards that resulted in the manufacturing Mm -hmm. of the PCB that's the the controller on that robot I just showed you. Does it have a name? Joe Butt. This one is Joe, Joe, Joe Bot 3. <laughs> Joe Bot 3, nice, yeah. nice.
1: We, uh, we've we come to name our pool cleaners in my household by, uh, you know, when they break and we get a new one and a new name. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, my Roomba is named Darth Vader, but my dog is Han Solo, so. I, I, don't,
1: sense, I don't sense a theme at all here, <laughs> <'kay>? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us. I'm not going to lie. You and Eric got into some stuff that I was just like, this is, you guys are talking in code, um, but it's, it's it was always easy.
1: It's all about cost and <laughs> yeah. weight and portability. I and mean, when you break it down, it, yeah. it really gets down to that.
0: Well, but also like, it always surprises me when I really start thinking about how complicated, secure, clear communication is.
1: hmm
2: yeah.
0: So thank you very much for joining us. And um, thank you to our listeners. Please share this podcast with your friends. You can hear us on all the major podcast platforms until next week. Uh, bye, you guys. Take thank care. Thank you.
1: Have a good day. Everybody. Thank you, Jennifer Brandler.
0: Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint, for more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store.